Yep, first job was from this same mentor who told me about healthcare administration. They had a fellowship program, and what this boils down to is an apprenticeship. Considered an internship, apprenticeship, very low pay, but what you get out of that is the chance to observe. Another key theme that I always share, at least for my situation, was proximity. Proximity to people who are doing what I might want to do in the place where it's being done. And that's a, a theme I've tried to share with others. So for me, it was a chance to graduate, be an intern or a fellow, as they call it, with these hospital executives, which really means sit in the corner and kind of watch what they do. So then when a rural hospital CEO job opened, I was a young CEO. I was 26 years old for my first CEO job. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Doug Morse. Doug is a former rural hospital CEO and a lifetime rural healthcare zealot. He currently helps hospital leaders and boards achieve exceptional scorecards and strong community support through educational events, projects to improve performance, and C-suite coaching. He is the author of the book, You Got This, How to Make Big Decisions at Small Hospitals. He has been recognized as a College Faculty Teacher of the Year and has received the Young Executive Achievement Award by the Iowa Hospital Association. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Doug. Doug, welcome to the Corporate Couch today. Thank you. Very happy to be here, Jeff. Yeah, this is great. You and I met recently. Uh, you're now working as principal at Exec HQ, uh, Jim Hogat's company, and I met Jim recently, and he introduced me to you. So I'm excited to talk to you because you've had a fantastic career. You're the first uh, interview, uh, somebody that actually ran a hospital system and has been CEO, and you know you founded your own uh, senior care f living uh, facility. So yeah, uh, teacher. So yeah, I'm very excited to get into that. Uh, so it's going to be fun. I always like to start off with a fun question, though. Um, we've been in the pandemic three plus years now. Um, we're used to Zoom. You and I are doing this podcast via Zoom. What What's the craziest attire you've seen on a professional Zoom call or lack of attire? <laughs> well, I'd say probably uh, somebody that was wearing a blue blazer and then um, really a swimming suit and was ready to head out to the pool right after that. So it was kind of a, a funny Zoom world sort of thing. Love it. Love it. Now, yeah. um, I have to ask, a blue blazer with a shirt or no shirt? Yep. Blue blazer, black t-shirt, which okay. I thought, okay. And then then stood yeah. up and said, and by the way, I'm off to the pool now. And it was it was just like you see in the memes as he was wearing it exactly like that show. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, that's good. That's good. When you were growing up, and uh, I'm going to assume Iowa because you've been there, it seems, throughout your whole career. But uh, <laughs> what did you love doing as a kid? What, yeah. what excited you? Yeah, I, I, was a, I was a kid with a lot of interests, and that is probably translated into adulthood as well. So I liked all the typical activities, born and raised in Iowa in a period where it was sports, little bit of music, little bit of travel, just really kind of a variety, sort of the classic, if you've ever seen the movie, The Sandlot, sort of that period of, you know, ball games and bike rides and, and just a little of everything. Loved summer, like every kid does. Right. 
Yeah, and summer seemed so long growing up. God, it seemed forever. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The greatest day, stepping out of the school, ready for a long summer. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any aspirations as a kid? Like, I want to be this when I become, when I grow up. You know, not necessarily. I uh, I never had a, a, an extremely clear path. I My journey has not been completely linear. I've been willing to kind of sidestep and go to where opportunities are along the way. I always enjoyed doing. My, my folks were the classic kind of Iowa folks. Uh, my dad worked for the postal service and my mom worked for the school system. So as long as we were doing something, that was one thing, uh, is, is making some sort of contribution was expected. So, you know, we were the classic hustled the paper route and worked at the grocery store and kind of always had something going. That's, that was the way I was raised basically. Right. And you and I are about the same age, I think. So yeah, having a paper route was a standard job for young people right but yes. this yes. generation doesn't even know what a newspaper is <laughs> no no and it was it long gone you don't even tell anybody about it because they don't know what i'm talking about wow you get the news the next day is you know it's like old, yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah exactly that's funny that's funny so uh you go to uh, luther college what what uh you became a business major what was yeah. your kind of thought process behind that I was, uh, you know, I always kind of describe my own approach as I, I happen to be ambidextrous. So I'm able to uh, both, both hands in use. And my, my Luther College experience was a small college. I greatly enjoyed music. I enjoy, and I took business courses and I took English and writing courses. So it was a good liberal arts sort of education. But then I centered on business, not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, but figured I could make a difference somehow and had some instructors that were doing a lot of really neat things in the nonprofit world. And and that really sparked my interest. So ultimately ended up with a uh, business major with a music and English sort of background, but knew that I wanted to do something in the business arena um, to make some sort of difference was what help me do it then do you or did you play an instrument you know i play piano play guitar a little bit but not anywhere near like the the music majors actually do oh, i yeah. do it all for enjoyment and, yeah, and interestingly i i often tell people that my my own music example is i've always been in a group so i've been in a choir i, I was in a barbershop quartet which is wow. a very focused thing because i'm not spectacular on my own but when I get with other people, it really is a one plus one equals three. Yeah. And for me, that's that's translated to career. Uh, I have always benefited from synergy working with others. And same for me, you know, moderate music abilities, but you get in a larger group. And I'm happy to say I've actually been in a choir at Carnegie Hall, which not everybody can say right. that, that I'm a very moderate ability person. But you get in a group and great things happen. And I think the same thing in the business world, Jeff. That's been the, my experience all the way through. Yeah, Carnegie Hall. It's like that old joke, you know. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Somebody's <laughs> asking for a direction. Practice. Yeah, yeah practice. So there you go. You got there. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. And it, and it was all, you know, some people have ability. Mine is just doing some of the work every day. Just grunt out the work. That's right. the difference, I think. Yeah, the daily process. It's uh, yeah. important. Uh, so it looks, it looks, Doug, like you went right to get your master's after college. Did you have a, a short stint, like a first job, or did you just say, I'm, and you've got two masters, so I'd love to hear about that experience. Yeah, so for me and, and anybody else that had similar circumstances, I graduated with a business degree, wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But my life and my career, my leadership abilities always has been influenced by someone of influence. And right after I graduated, I met uh, an individual just through friends who was running a hospital. And I hadn't even considered hospital administration as a career. But he started telling me about that right in that period, right before graduation. And the ticket to get to senior jobs in, in this that world is, is a master's in hospital health administration. So rather than take a job and take on some of those duties. He had great advice, which was simply, hey, you're already used to being a student. 
you're used to being poor, just keep going, get everything you can, which I was. And so I, I went for the master's in hospitals, health administration. And um, because I was full-time, then I started that program and the head of that program told me about a dual master's that they had. And I always wanted a little flexibility. And so there were a handful of us who applied for and were able to do two master's degrees at the same time, which uh, because I was full-time, I just considered it my job and cranked away for three years so I could get both a master's hospital administration and the MBA, which I thought would open up more doors for me later. And I'd encourage other people to be thinking like that. Always keep doors open early in your career. Yeah, I love it. And even today, I would assume you're, you'd be uh, the expert on this, but you know, getting your master's in hospital and health administration is still probably a, a good thing to do today. Curious on your opinion on that, as well as do you recommend somebody get their master's in a business MBA today? Well, that's a great question. I can speak more clearly on the healthcare side. I think a master's in in healthcare or hospital administration is very helpful because you get the deep dive. There are some technical things in the industry you really do want to learn, and you learn how that system works. The MBA side, um, harder for me to answer. I've used my MBA. My period was when it was a full-time, so I gave up you know, work in a lot of economics in order to spend three years. This idea of um, being able to work and get your MBA makes sense. Um, And the other thing that I learned in my life, one way or another, learning more has always been better. So to the degree you can get an MBA or more education, it, it has just opened more doors for me and probably does for others. So it's hard to recommend against it. If I had the chance to, if I had had back then, to either do th- something remotely or work and get my MBA, I probably would have done that. Um, that's a neat option in today's world, sure. seems to me. So you come out of, was it the University of Iowa? Yes. Yep. You come out, uh, yeah, Hawkeyes, there we go. Uh, yeah. Come out of, in, in, I think it was 91. So what was, what was your first job out of college and how'd you get it? Yep. First job was from this same mentor who told me about healthcare administration. They had a fellowship program. And what this boils down to is an apprenticeship, considered an internship apprenticeship. And I was willing to do that very low pay. But what you get out of that is the chance to observe. Another key theme that I always share, at least for my situation, was proximity, proximity to people who are doing what I might want to do in the place where it's being done. And that's a a theme I've tried to share with others. So for me, it was a chance to graduate, be an intern or a fellow, as they call it, with these hospital executives, which really means sit in the corner and kind of watch what they do. And by doing that and doing projects, and and for me, it was a 24-7 kind of thing. I enjoyed it, so I, I worked hard at it. So then when a rural hospital CEO job opened, I was a young CEO. I was 26 years old wow. for my first CEO job. Yeah, I noticed that. I was going to ask you, what what was that yeah. like, 26 yeah, look, of being a CEO? <laughs> I look back now, and I see why some people kind of raised an eyebrow. The only way I was able to do that, it was part of a health system, and I had good mentors. Um, but um, I was able to, and I worked for a local board. I was hired by the board. I had been around enough and brought to it what was needed at the time. And so my first role, again, I look back now and I think, I can see why I looked so young and for people who would work there as long as I was old um, required me to use my approach, which is always respect folks. Um, I have always uh, not been impressed by my own title outside the door. Uh, That has not meant much to me. It's more of what we're trying to accomplish. And that worked well when you're that uh, unseasoned in a leadership role. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to go try to tell people how to do things, but rather do the best you can to contribute. So that was my path. 
we're all on the journey and we learn things when we're supposed to learn them. But if you had one or two things you wish you would knew earlier, being a 26-year-old CEO, what would those things be? Why, that's a great question. Because I was pretty much a change agent at the time. I think probably one of my major lessons was mistakes that I made back then or all the way through probably was either not holding certain people to standards and allowing some subpar performance and letting that go on too long or, or hiring people because I just needed a person. I was desperate to just fill the job and that never worked well. <laughs> and I repeated that error. I don't know if you've ever done that, Jeff, but oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, uh, that, I tell people I regret that, that I regret out of my career. Cause I did that, you know, more times than I care to admit. Um, yeah. I, I, I prided myself. I pride myself on hiring great people and uh, that want to do great things. But yeah, the, the mistakes I've made in the past in hiring is when I just wanted to get a body. In. Yeah. 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 And you know, as, now that I'm more seasoned, I realize how unfair it is to the person in addition to the teammates, but it just, it never worked out well. And I did that e eventually more times than I wish I would have. So if I could rewind the clock, I'd hold my own behavior better, but I did. I hired people with a pulse because the job was open, couldn't get it filled and uh, never the right reasons. And it never worked out very well, candidly. A big yeah, lesson I, learned. Yeah, and I think the even the the worst scenario is actually what you just said, as well as that person took a job because they just needed a job and it wasn't a good fit for them. So it's a it just multiple it's a ten x multiplier of bad. <laughs> well, and you know the other thing that it does, and and I saw that as soon as you kind of go from, you know, if you just stick to hiring a level people, and and I don't mean that literally, but you know what I mean, the top notch. But as soon as you sort of start B, B minus, and then make the worst mistake of maybe make a B minus C plus person, a supervisor or boss, they're not going to hire A because they know it. And it begins this spin down that I've seen and I've contributed to by hiring the wrong people. And so later in my career, I started to recognize that's a race to the bottom but boy, uh, easy to give in to that. And I did over the years. Um, but I encourage people now to think like that. If we stay at a level, because if you have a, again, if you have a C or C minus supervisor, you're just not going to hire, you're going to hire nothing but C minus or below. And here we go straight into the ground. Yeah, that whole hiring philosophy and strategy, I first learned from the book Top Grading. So, you know, you need to hire A's and, and you know, and the problem is if you hire a B, then just like you said, they're going to want to hire C's because they don't want to, yeah. you know, because yeah. a lot of managers, which is unfortunate that, you know, they don't want to hire people smarter than themselves. I, you know, I think you and I would be under the, we want to hire people a lot smarter than us. <laughs> and that's not hard. <laughs> it's not hard for me. Low anyway. bar, right, Doug? <laughs> right. Yeah, you're, right. you're being very humble. I mean, you've had a great career. So I have to ask you, um, we'll get into how you founded um, the senior care facilities, but God, we talk about the pandemic kind of in a joking manner, but uh, at the time the pandemic hit, your owner co-founder of a, about four or five different sites in a senior care assisted living facility, as well as I believe Hanson Family Hospital, you're the CEO. So tell, you know, I mean, that was uh, I, actually one of our daughters was an ER nurse in Kansas City um, during the pandemic. And uh, so, but tell us what, I mean, that this took all your, probably your leadership abilities and just tell us about that experience of what you learned from it. First of all, the senior housing business had its own executive director. So fortunately, I did not have day-to-day -day responsibility. And that individual did a phenomenal job through the process. I was the CEO of a rural hospital, Hanson Family Hospital. 
And mostly I would share, you know how you have certain images and memories that people have. We had about 230 employees in a rural community, uh, which has made us a major employer uh, for that in the county. And probably for me, the moment that mostly hit home was when the governor said that hospitals, you know, really needed to shut down portions of their business. And, you know, one has no background to consider the afternoon when there's this announcement that you're going to shut down and seize services in more than half the facility. And in that moment, it we didn't yet know what sort of support there would be. So I, I do remember that, you know, and I, and I was fairly seasoned. This was only a few years ago. I'd been at it a while, but I kind of, that took my breath away when I had to process, oh boy, what's this going to mean now of shut down half the hospital, uh, you know, send folks home what's it going to mean for the community we're the largest employer and and that really required a, a big deep breath uh and and for me one interest i've always had is is history i had kind of looked at the hundred year history of this hospital in the community so it did help to think about well other people have been through this over a hundred years, a lot has gone on. This will just be one more hill to climb. But leading the pandemic, it started sort of for me that afternoon of this big announcement and, and the facility, what I remember is 250 employees and people were just quiet. People were processing. You know how there's always a buzz and, and action going on in a hospital but employees, patients, everybody, it was just quiet because people were thinking, what next? And so that for me started the process. And then it was just a matter of communicating out what we would do. We started setting plans that day. And then I was um, a pretty big user of videos and I would do video messages and we would push those out to people's phones about what was happening on a regular basis to try to keep people up to speed. So it was communicate as much as possible, which I'm sure others have done, but they say that in leadership, but it is an all day, every day communication scenario and certainly was on the pandemic. Yeah. Do you remember uh, what uh, video service do you use to push out content? So I would create um, videos on my iPad and um, convert them. And then our tech person, I think, was using YouTube somehow. Yeah. And then he was sending that out. And I'm so happy because I would do the video yeah. update for the day. And then I would be able, as I'm walking through the facility, people were watching it so that everybody got the same thing at the same time. And the other thing that someone told me I didn't even think about was... Um, it demonstrated commitment to what I was saying, that it was the truth as I know it, because I was putting it out on video. So if you want to look back in four weeks, take a look, because it's what I knew at the time. It's right. everything I knew. And um, some things I may be wrong about, but at least I was willing to commit to video, which I didn't see that as such a thing, but people really appreciated that because um, I stood by what I said because I was willing to put it on camera and send it out to everybody. So sure. uh, it's a technique that I unexpectedly came upon, but I'd encourage people to think about it. Yeah, no, I love, I love the idea. I think it's a great idea. You know, the hybrid remote workforce, it's, it's just a great way to communicate in a, in a personal manner. So I, I, I yeah. applaud you for doing that. So just to go back on, you know, being such a young CEO and then having various CEO jobs early on in, in your career, was there, uh, obviously you had mentors and I like to hear about those, but any books that you really learned from during that period that you would recommend? That's a hard one to tell you the truth, Jeff. Not so much books, but I had mentors. I have always, again, that proximity principle. I had the benefit of some really good bosses and I was never afraid to ask questions. And they gave me the great gift of their time and telling me right or wrong what I should be doing differently. And I mention that because now that I'm the one more seasoned, 
I've really tried to pay it forward. And I appreciate that that's kind of a hassle as a leader to really take someone under your wing, spend time teaching them. But I had a couple of system executives who were phenomenal. For example, it'd be evening and weekend times because everybody's so busy. You know, we were, they were CEOs of systems, but I would call any night, any weekend, um, go find them and they would take time with me. Wow. And that was absolutely invaluable. It's, it's indescribable what an impact that had on me. Um, and and I, I tried to do that later and I really appreciate how much work it is, but it was life-changing for me. There's no doubt about it because their experience helped me early on. And so every role I had, I was a little bit ahead. As I went on to be a CEO, I was still relatively young, but I was seasoned because I'd been at it a while. And so it helped me move forward. Yeah. So you started your, um, senior living, assisted living, uh, business in 1999. What kind of, what was the thought process behind, you know, being a co-founder owner of those uh, facilities? That was born of spotting an opportunity. One of the things I had done is I had moved out of healthcare administration. We have three children and I wanted to spend more time with them. So I had the opportunity to, to be be near another major mentor who is a person named John Papajohn, who is a venture capitalist who is launching entrepreneurial centers. And I was able to be hired by John in a college to help him. John wanted to launch in Iowa four or five entrepreneurial centers to boost entrepreneurship in the state of Iowa. And so in that period where I was running the Papa John Entrepreneurial Center, helping consult um, and help small businesses grow, it became obvious that assisted living was a niche that wasn't being met in North Iowa. And so I, a friend of mine who had significant financial skills and another friend who was an architect and I had healthcare. So it was another example of kind of assembling my own musical group, which is the people and the resources. We launched then the assisted living company and hired an executive director to run it. And we were available as a board, as a managing board, and then just slowly grew site by site over time, always using that manager. But the key theme I'd offer up again is I didn't know anything about it, but I knew someone who does, which is one of my mantras on my desk, which is I may not know anything about it, but I know someone who does. And so I've always been willing to reach out. If I needed an architect, I'd call an architect friend. If I needed some finance help, if I needed healthcare, I brought that. If I needed, you know, those kinds of things. So that's how we launched it and grew it slowly because it was a need in this region at the time. And so I was able to do that because I wasn't actively managing it. I could do my other activities and yet stay involved. Yeah, so it looked like you uh, were part of that uh, entrepreneurial um, fellowship teaching uh, uh, entrepreneurship to s students for about seven years. Um, so you kind of got that from your mom, I guess. She was a teacher. Yeah. And I love one of the quotes you had. Uh, I think it was on your bio. You're a, a successful CEO with the heart of a teacher. But tell us about that experience. I just went through, I, I think I might have told you in our initial discussion, that I just uh, filled in at the University of Kansas in their undergraduate uh, business program. I taught Salesforce, not the CRM, but Salesforce Leadership Management. Mm -hmm. And uh, boy, it's a, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that. And you did it for seven years. So you, and I think yeah. you won some award teacher of the year twice. So tell us all about yeah. that experience. I was very thankful to be recognized. Uh, my story is very simple. I had doors opened for me by these mentors that I referenced. My circumstances growing up, it was a loving family in a rural area, maybe without all these opportunities. And so mentors showed me doors I didn't even know existed. And by that time in my career, it was a great time because frankly, these were community college students from rural areas. And I became the person trying to open doors for them so they could spot new things that maybe they didn't even know existed. 
And it was so rewarding. As you know, it's a lot of work. You know, you're definitely not in it for anything economic. And I wasn't. I'm happy to say that I deeply enjoyed that. It was fun for me. And the proof is, as you saw too, when you love what you're doing and students see that, they show up. It's that simple, right? Just like at work. If, if we're motivated and, and seeking and getting something out of it. And so I really benefited by teaching and I taught entrepreneurship courses and, and classes and helped run the clubs. And, and mostly it was opening doors. And, and I tell you, Jeff, to this day, I'll hear on LinkedIn from former students and it is a thrill to hear what they're doing. And so I stuck with that. It matched well for my family circumstances, being around for the kids and very rewarding to be the person opening a few doors or having people see some new things because that's what I had the chance to do. So it was a great experience and very energizing. Even though it's a lot of work, the big picture was the interaction with the students. It was both online and in the classroom. I always enjoyed the classroom more. The online was always, you probably had the same experience, I would imagine. Yeah, I only did one actual Zoom teaching class. And then KU would have business sponsors. So they would bring in guest speakers. And one of them, were in, I'm in Kansas City and... um they were in Dallas, these people, uh, for E&J Gallo. So they did a Zoom. It's funny because they're they're in their beds with their laptop on their lap. It's like, exactly. It's a little awkward, but it's all good. Well, and I, I wanted to share something, too, that I learned from that, that I've carried forward into all my other activities. This idea how all the people we work with have such untapped talent. So case in point, I have always viewed the people not on the income statement as an expense, as an employee expense, but as an asset on the balance sheet. And I found these community college students, like everybody in the work world too, have so much to give. There's a lot of untapped talent. And how that applies to like being a hospital CEO, we have a lot of operating systems that will tell us what the desk is worth, what the chair is worth, what the x-ray unit is worth. We have a depreciation schedule. So I could walk in and I could ask somebody, hey, what's that thing worth on the books? But we have no systems that tell us what the people who work there are worth. So they'll go off and get more training and more education, maybe a little note in the file, but there's no way to quantify their, their actual talent development and growth in a role. And so I have always been a giant supporter of ongoing talent development, training education, because that's an asset that is growing. That never was an expense to me, ever. And so I learned that and I really used that both in my own business and in the hospitals that I ran. And I always, it's part of my zealotry for other leaders is consider your top team right now. Can you quantify what they're worth? And yet the board table we're sitting around, we know exactly what that's worth. There's an operating system for all these hard assets, but not for our people. So that's kind of my soapbox spiel around investing in people because we tend to forget it because we don't have the same quantification abilities. Have you experienced that too in your role? Oh, yeah. I, I love that you said that it, just because I'm a lifelong learner and I know I don't know anything, right? Or I know some things, but not everything. Um, and I never will, right? So you, once you stop learning, you stop living, right? right. And I was lucky. Uh, my first managerial experience was with... Um, when I went from AT&T to Sprint and they had a really good program. And as part of the formal review process, the annual review process, which is either a dreaded experience or people can make it great, but they had, you needed a learning and development plan as part of your 
professional plan, right? So what you not only your goals for the upcoming year, but what do you have to do to grow professionally, right? So I, I, mm -hmm. I had that. And every company I went to, you know, the 10, 11, 12 companies I've worked for, I've always brought that experience, whether it was formal or not. So I always said, you know, what do you want to accomplish? And let's talk about how you get there. And I, I'm a believer, the person, the team member needs to own that 51% at least, you know, they, ha they mm -hmm. have the ownership, but the, but as the, the manager, the leader, you need to be part of that and be a big part of it. So, yeah. um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it, it's wonderful. I mean, obviously you had your internal training, but any external training that you use that you would recommend to other leaders, you know, whether it's a Blanchard, Covey, Carnegie, you know, I work for a company on a contract basis in the last year called the Institute for Management Studies, which I think they have great content, but I'm just curious for, you know, what you would recommend. And obviously you're in a hospital yeah. environment, so maybe, you know, there's other things. Sure. More generally, Covey, you know, makes a, a lot of sense to do some of those types of things. We did a lot of the crucial conversations, talk, and training around those kinds of things. So externally, those were probably the two major systems that probably, you know, made the most impact that come off the top of my head. And we tried to have for each person a written talent development plan. And that was another thing that really made a difference, which is every person has an assessment of where they are and where they want to go, and then specific steps. And so my quarterly meetings with anybody I ever worked with as CEO was always, okay, here's where you want to go. Here's the things we're working on, and here's how I'm helping. And the payoff for that is in retention. It shows people there's a path. So I have been encouraging people who are certainly in the healthcare arena or anywhere else who have these retention issues these stay interviews and these talent development conversations show people they have a future there. And I think it's been a pretty good return on my time and my team's time. So I'm a big proponent of that because the ROI comes through in lower turnover. Right. Um, and, and people are energized by it because I'm working with a couple companies right now, in fact, and you can see people just sort of light up when we talk about them and what they want to do, and it makes a big difference in um, engagement. Uh, so I'd recommend people consider those two tools if they're interested. Sure. Now, um, I was going to ask you, and you might have just answered it, but obviously employee retention, you know, that me that metric is good. Was there any other things you did to quantify, you know, the kind of your people asset? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've been working on some additional research because there are other companies much better than I am at that. So I'm only at the stage right now where I could say encouraging leaders to look at that, getting it to the level. What was running through my mind when you asked that question, Jeff, is um, in particular, I had this conversation with a specific department of the hospital because they were very energized by this topic, which is let's find a way that we quantify what you're worth to the organization. And if we can do it with a piece of equipment, we ought to be able to do it. It's more than just your salary. And whether we apply some multiple to that or something along those lines, but you know, the reason people leave is because they, they disagree in the value, right? They just think I'm worth more somewhere else. I can't say and list off, unfortunately, a firm I would recommend or a process, but they're, they're out there. What I've always used is just a multiple. It's not your salary. It's more than that. And let's quantify it because it's crazy. We can say what the chair and equipment is worth, but not the person. Right. And th that's an area I'm excited about even deep diving further as I go forward, because I think it can really make a difference for companies. Yeah, and I'd like um, you talk about um, in some of the, your consulting that you're doing now, and we'll talk about that in a while, but 
the data storytelling. So I love the storytelling aspect because, you know, no one remembers a bullet on a PowerPoint slide, right? So tell us a little bit about that and how you approach the storytelling aspect of presenting data. This is something I've been doing a lot of it because like in the quality world, healthcare quality world, there's data everywhere. And frankly, to a large degree, it has a numbing effect on providers and others because it's chart after chart after graph after chart, which doesn't speak to people. So a couple things. Our brains are wired for stories, as you well know. This this very podcast, why it's so popular and people respond to it is because it's a lot of people telling their own stories. But one, data alone doesn't move people. Because if data alone moved people, none of us would smoke, we'd all eat better, and we'd sleep eight hours a day, right? The data is clear. So that's number one. And two, if you and I look at the same number, the difference is, is it never speaks for itself. We are bringing our life experiences to that number, our own perceptions and biases. So having people understand that, what our approach has been, and I have a partner, her name is Susan Runyon. She's a clinician out of Kansas. I provide the administrative viewpoint through my perspective. She provides her nursing. And what we're trying to do is look at some sort of trend or story and then offer up a parallel story. I'll give you one example, Jeff, and people could dig into this sort of thing or I'd be happy to talk with them more. Sometimes we only make tiny little improvements. Our data shows very little change, but it's still, let's say, an upward trend. Well, instead of necessarily just showing the upward trend, we like to talk about a parallel story. And, and one that I've been using is this great story of the young man who was a child born with Down syndrome who completed the Ironman triathlon, Chris Nikic. And after he completed that, which is an astounding accomplishment, his mantra all along was, I just got 1% better every day. And so in the meetings we have with clinicians or others, it, it may seem very marginal and be discouraging, but look what it can do if you look at Chris's story. And then later, you can start referring back to a story like that. And, and we go into it, of course, more so we understand sure. his whole story. But it, it provides a conversational piece around the data so you get the point across, but it isn't just a chart and graph. So it's a parallel story. Other examples we try to use just to hit home on this is that NFL story, whether it's Many people heard about the two brothers who played in the Super Bowl, for example, as people maybe have heard. Go if you, Chiefs. If you watch yeah, that. Go Chiefs. Exactly. <laughs> as you would probably be thinking. People have heard about two brothers and mom was wearing the coat yeah. with both teams and all that. But what was the score of the Super Bowl? Most couldn't answer it, but they remember the story about the mom and the two brothers. Right. Our brains are wired for characters tension and drama. And so part of the work I've been doing is helping businesses and healthcare in particular take that important data, but adding characters, tension and drama so people can actually do something with it and make it come alive. Right. So I tee that up if anybody's interested because it's a, it's extremely compelling. Yeah. I love it. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's very interesting and I guarantee people talk about it more than our, it's, it's in addition to our charts and graphs, but it makes it come alive through a story. Yeah. And I've led market research teams as part of my responsibilities at various different companies. And they're the worst presentations. I mean, they're, they, there's so much data on a slide. You're just like, you know. So when I took over teams, you know, and I inherited market research, like we're not presenting this stuff, you know, we can put in the appendix. If we want to dig into it, let's tell stories. Let's make sure they know what is happening, not just looking at a, such a busy slide. Right. So, yeah, um, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Any, uh, people you would recommend or books that kind of, if people want to dig in, obviously they can reach out to you, but anything where you learned storytelling aspect. I was greatly influenced by 
TED Talks, data storytelling. And there have been a number of absolutely fantastic TED Talks on data storytelling. And I would really encourage people to spend some time because um, I think you'll find it very energizing and exciting to learn from those experts because I'm just this tiny piece trying to help a little bit in the healthcare arena. But those folks, there's five or six or seven that I can think of. And then all you need to do is search some of the TED Talks and there's just been some phenomenal work done there. Yeah, and I think presentations in general, one book I recommend, it's, I don't know how old, uh, uh, Guy Kawasaki, uh, Presentation Zen. That was my okay. first experience with that. And then Seth Godin has this very low cost uh, presentation course on Udemy. I I want to say it's $20, mm -hmm. but I, I, I don't know. I, I did I did it a long time ago, but I think those two are are, are good in terms of you know how to present things where people understand. But it's all you're right. It's all about the storytelling, you know. Well, and, and on that front too, uh, there's a book called Talk Like Ted, which has analyzed TED talks, and I found that just in general, also to your point, Jeff, kind of for public speaking or presentations to be golden to help. It was a really good resource. Sure. Thank you for that. So you've CEO of various companies, you co-founded and uh, was an owner for, you know, 24 years of a senior care assisted living facility. And then you write a book recently. So tell us what was your thought process behind that? And uh, you were kind enough to give me a copy. And I know it's written more like a uh, fiction, uh, but with obviously uh, learning lessons. So tell us about that, Doug. I had the experience, the book was uh, born of a difficult, one of the hardest experiences I've had, which boiled down to in a small rural hospital, having to, to decide whether or if or how to continue obstetrics delivery services, delivering babies in a small town, which was early in the process. Now it's really been all over the country. But what I lived was my instincts when we had to make this big decision about whether to deliver babies or not, my instincts were to communicate as much as possible to the community as frequently as possible about the problem. And so as the CEO, we weren't going to be able to continue to deliver babies. The decision point's very clear. You can meet with the board and meet with medical staff and make a decision in private closed meetings and then announce what you're going to do. Or you can tell the community, here's what's happened. Here's what we're working on. We need more people to give some feedback and involve the community, which is a very distinctly different path. And in my case, the board was very supportive and, and that's the way to do things was to tell folks very early what was going on and that we wanted to have a, a, a process to get more input from more people. Now, a lot of people don't care for that because you got to hear a bunch of stuff you don't want to hear from people who see the world really differently than you do. So we went through a very specific mission discernment process, very public. It started with a meeting where several hundred people showed up, of course, with their young children, young moms, everybody. And I laid out the facts. And it was very liberating to share with the community what was going on because people had no idea. They just didn't know the facts. And so that experience, I think, worked better than some other facilities that chose to kind of have closed meetings and then just announce that they're stopping OB. That doesn't go as well because people haven't had a chance to process. Having been through that, I wanted to give a tool and a resource for people how to make those decisions, whether it's a hospital or anything else. And it culminated in this book which I put in the story. So it is a novel story format of a young CEO of a hospital who goes through the process. And it's a, it's a business fable 
it's a read that I've been told can apply to uh, lots of businesses, not just hospitals, but provides kind of a step-by-step who to include, how, some things to think about uh, as you're speaking with the community and a guide on how to make big decisions to maximize customer support. And so I, it, it ends up being in a, a, a readable business fable format. And it has a guide for anybody who's running a business, but has a big decision to make. I'm very pleased because I had the support of a board, the medical staff. I don't take any credit for it at all, but our community willingness to have those hard conversations was ultimately a hard decision, but positive because people learned how to communicate on tough issues because this isn't the only one, there will be more. And so it was a, it turned out to be a, a, Difficult experience, but beneficial to the community and to our organization. Yeah, I love that. So obviously you wrote it because of that one experience about the challenge at the time of delivering babies at the hospital, but you said a young CEO. So how much of your 26-year-old experience being a CEO is in the book? A lot of it. Most of the places I went to, and I've been CEO, have been either turnarounds or major decisions needed. And I've often said my advice to leaders of any part in their career, don't pull the cart alone, using a very rural phrase, which is don't pull the cart alone, ask for assistance. Because people want your business to succeed that's been my experience and, and find allies who have aligned interests and be willing to ask for help. So to your point, this all began for me very early on in that first job where we had some major decisions, but I was very open. I think that's why I got the feedback about heart of a teacher, because I don't like being the only one holding the information when others learn then we can start solving together. So I'm, I'm not the kind of leader that hoards information. I'd prefer to educate others so they can do the heavy lifting. And so it does apply kind of each phase I've had, Jeff, to your point, you really nailed it, that, that ultimately that's worked better for me than announcements of big decisions that people can't be involved with. It helps to educate and communicate as much as possible has been my experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mean, it could be leaders at all levels and different levels of experience. But I think one of the mistakes a young leader will make as you know they first start be, you know, being a manager, having people report to them, they they think they need to know everything, and that's obviously not the case. So you you definitely need to ask for assistance. So here you are being a CEO at 26, and then being various different companies, CEOs over time, starting your own company, co-founding and owning it. Tell the audience what you're doing now in terms of helping others and providing value to business. I have always been kind of deliberate in what I wanted to do. And so one of the things I wanted to do is assist other organizations in a broader geography in different areas. That was something that I was looking forward to. So one thing I'd say for anybody doing career planning or life planning is try to be thinking a step ahead. And I happen to just be with my wife and I, we're at, we're at the free bird or empty nest stage, which means there's a little more flexibility. So what I'm doing now, and I'm happy to say that's how you and I met Jeff, and I'm very thankful for that is I am a management consultant to hospitals or other businesses and uh, for an organization called Exec HQ. And really what I'm doing is centering around three specialties. One is educational events. I do a lot of workshops or training to small hospitals, C-suites or middle managers. And that's just around educational topics that can help them set their strategies. The second piece I'm doing a, a fair amount of is uh, uh, coaching and succession planning, again, for 
rural hospitals, C-suites, and leaders who have become leaders but are maybe not seasoned in the role to be available to help advise and, and offer next steps. And then the third piece is you know, strategy and projects for rural hospitals just to improve the financial statements as needed, kind of the nuts and bolts of making sure financial performance is driving the future. So the educational events, the the one-on-one -on -one coaching, and then the financial performance improvements um, is the practice that I've been building. And it's the exact same principles we've been talking about all along, um, which is giving people new skills so they can do the work better themselves. Yeah, I, I love that. There's two groups I, I love to help asking great leaders like yourself their wisdom. So the first group is recent college graduate, you know, they graduate and they're like, what do I do now? <laughs> so what advice would you give a recent college graduate in, in obtaining their first professional job? I would say seek out the proximity principle, first of all, seek out a mentor. And in that case, I always found, you know, we're not really asking for a favor what we're looking for is just a chance, an opportunity, just some access. So regardless of who it is, someone you admire who you think could be a mentor, I'd reach out and see if you can find a way to have a mentor if you're early in your career, just as that sounding board, because you'll secure wisdom beyond what you might think otherwise. So for less seasoned folks, I would I usually offer up a thought of, seek out a mentor for proximity principle. And then secondly, try to focus more on asking questions than providing answers. That's a skill it took me a while to learn, but this idea early on of probing questions, you'll help the people you're working with and you'll learn more through question posing rather than answers, which is, sometimes easier said than done, but it's easy to reel off the quick answers because everybody will just want a quick answer, but instead pose a question. That's usually what I offer for early consideration for less seasoned people. Love it. Love it. And I think the second group I like to help is, and we've talked about this, so you don't have to answer it again, or you may just want to add on, but you become a manager a leader. I mean, anybody can be a leader. You don't have to have direct reports, but when you do have a team under you and you're first starting that journey, anything you would add uh, to the advice you gave earlier in terms of, you know, don't pull the card alone, ask for assistance to those, that group of people. I think one thing I would add is something that I've, again, I was taught this very early on. The minute you get the chance to be a leader, actually write down on a piece of paper just for yourself, what legacy do I want to leave? I think that's a great question at any stage in your career, but just think about how do you want to be remembered? And that will help inform your working with other people in a new leadership role. What's the kind of legacy you want to leave? And I think that kind of helps with some of the practical, tactical things we talked about, Jeff. But the big picture would be, when you're gone, because in, in my career, certainly as I've moved to different roles or like you did, you've worked for a number of companies, we've left some sort of legacy. And so thinking a little bit ahead of that, of kind of what you want that to be sometimes helps inform our leadership day to day. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it's, uh, you know, from the uh, Stephen Covey, you know, begin with the end in mind, you know, one of the seven uh, principles. So I, I love that. Exactly. Yeah. So Doug, I love this conversation. You are a true definition of servant leadership. I, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you very much. I uh, really appreciate the chance to have the visit, Jeff, and um, really enjoyed it. And I hope others can kind of chime in with their learnings. It's a collective learning. So thanks a million for the time. I appreciate it. Great. Have a great rest of the day, Doug. Thank you. Doug was just a delight to talk to. I mean, I love what he says about himself, oh, yeah. you know, kind of his, I'll say, tagline, a successful CEO with the heart of a teacher. And he won two Teacher of the Year awards in that entrepreneurial program he was teaching. 
Uh, he was a 26-year-old CEO. I mean, I can't even imagine I, at 26 myself being a CEO. Knowing me when I was 26, you would not want me to be a CEO, I can tell you that. <laughs> but, you know, and, and you and I both love data, but we both know no one remembers a bullet point on a PowerPoint with numbers, but everyone remembers stories. And Doug talks about him being a data storyteller, and I'm really for an ex-CEO of multiple different companies. But I love this story of this past Super Bowl where Kansas City Chiefs versus the Eagles played. And obviously, I live in Kansas City, and you know the town goes crazy over oh, you yeah. know, uh, Patrick Mahomes and the rest of the crew. But he said, hey, everybody remembers during that Super Bowl the story of Travis Kelsey and his brother Jason Kelsey. Travis playing for the Chiefs, Jason playing for the Eagles, both all pros, and their mom. And who would their mom root who for? Who do you root for? And she was involved in so many interviews, and everybody remembers that. Then he goes, but nobody remembers the score of the Super Bowl game. And I'm yeah. like, I watched that game. I'm a Chiefs fan, unless they're playing the Jets. But I couldn't remember the score of the game. I think that's a great example that if you have a PowerPoint presentation that has just data on it, you might as well click forward immediately because nobody's going nobody's gonna to be learning anything from it at all. You've got to have a story. You've got to have some sort of narrative behind it. Exactly. Um, I can't let go, of, of course, one little thing that he said, uh, almost as a side, where he was talking about the synergy of music and musicians. The fact that, you know, the definition of synergy is that the sum of the parts is greater than any, one, uh, any individual part. And that's certainly true in music. Um, if you think of uh, voices in a choir, for instance, you don't have to have incredible singers in a choir. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you don't want that. But when you blend them all together, you can make an incredible sound. You can even think of something like the Beatles, for instance. You know, the Beatles individually, the four guys were great musicians, but when you put them together, they were iconic in a way that was never seen before and never seen since. And that would have only happened after the four of them got together and started making their music collectively. So I think that was amazing. The other thing that I thought that was interesting that he came up with was the concept of we don't know the value of an individual employee, that we know the value of all our hard assets. We know the value of this table or this chair or this blackboard or the room that we're sitting in or something like that. We know the value of each one of those, but there is no definitive way of saying this employee is worth $10,000 or $100,000 or $50,000, whatever the number is. The closest that we have for this is the old Jack Welch thing that they came up with, a forced ranking, where you take all of your employees and you rank them from one through X. So that you can say, well, you know, John is more valuable than Susie or something like that because he, he ranked higher on, on this scale. But that doesn't, that assumes that the, your, your uh, pool of employees that you have are essentially a bell curve. And so that doesn't work at all if, the, if all of your employees are A employees, right? And you right. kind of hope that with very few exceptions, you are hiring A employees. So, but you still have HR departments that are forcing you to force rank your employees in some way. I've, I've gone through that exercise at least twice in in my career and it's frustrating and pointless but the problem is it's an open unsolved question in business if you don't do it like that then how do you do it how do you determine the, the value of an employee and i don't have a good answer for that um you can yeah i think doug's working on it yeah he's working <laughs> on it now there is kind of the the concept of the value of for a salary in the marketplace so that you can say, well, other, other people in a similar rank and similar uh, experiences and similar skills are typically paid X thousand dollars a year. And so we're gonna pay John or Susie X thousand dollars because that's what the marketplace allows, okay? But that's not really the value of that employee to that corporation. That's actually just the value of the employee to the marketplace. 
and that's not quite the same thing. So if he ever comes up with anything, I'd love for him to put it in a book and um, tell us about it because uh, I think that's something that, that we really need. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Uh, I, I believe he'll come up with something. He's, he's that good. It was, he was a real pleasure to talk to. Yeah, so based on Doug's expertise, career journey, what he stands for, what leadership advice would you want to give our listeners? We're going back to that great philosopher Rajesh Kuthrapali again. And Rajesh one time said this, when you come back to Earth in a Soyuz capsule, you free fall from space at 500 miles per hour. And the only thing that slows you down is a little parachute that pops out right before you crash to the ground. And the whole thing was designed by the same brilliant minds who are unable to capture Rocky and Bullwinkle. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.